It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 28, The Strained Rains of a Waning Rain. Where am I? Um, History of the Netherlands. It's a pleasure to be back. I've been renovating a house. It's wonderful to think about Burgundian medieval politics rather than floorboards and plaster. In the final decade of his reign, Philip the Good was obsessed with the idea of a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. However, the complexities of the diverse state that he had built would never allow him to fulfill this dream, as he would continually be distracted by local issues. Although Philip had been released from vassalage to him, the French king, Charles VII, remained a threat to stability in Burgundy. Their status as frenemies was solidified when Charles VII's son, the Dauphin Louis, sought refuge at the Burgundian court, which Philip gladly provided. Philip's own son and heir, Charles, Count of Charolais, had major father issues of his own, since their blowout over the role of the Croy family in his household. Since then, and despite the birth of his daughter Mary, Charles had become estranged from his father, as well as the fine workings of central governance. He retreated to Holland to worry about whether he would ever indeed actually receive his inheritance. The ascendancy of the exiled Dauphin to the French throne would then set in motion a sequence of events which threatened to permanently splinter the Burgundian realm. But before this could happen, the estates of the Burgundian Netherlands took the small step of organising a meeting on their own accord in order to secure Charles's inheritance and force a reconciliation between the ageing and deteriorating Duke and his ambitious and aggressive son. And in so doing, the Estates General of the Netherlands had taken one giant leap onto centre stage of low country politics. We are going to cover a lot in this episode, so to begin with, we are going to take a quick look at what was going on with the relationship between France and Burgundy during the four or so years that Louis, the Dauphin, spent in exile in Brabant. It is important to remember that although France and Burgundy 
had officially on paper ended hostilities with the Treaty of Arras in 1435, Charles VII and Philip had remained locked in a cold war, always trying to diplomatically undercut, outmaneuver and thwart each other's strategic positions. We saw an example of this last episode when Charles VII had leveraged Philip's obsession with going on a crusade against the security of his own domains. Sure, Philip could leave his lands to go and take on the Turks if he wanted, but those lands might be French territory if and when he ever returned. So, with this tussle in mind, it was a great boon for Philip when Charles VII's son and heir, Louis, arrived seeking protection from his father. Philip gave great attention to the desires of the Dauphin, always showing him deference and trying to build a relationship that would serve his own interests in the future. The chroniclers explain in detail the almost absurd lengths Philip would go to to show proper courtesy towards his unexpected guest, with Richard Vaughan describing his behavior towards Louis as, quote, obsequious servility, end quote. Surely, when Louis did become king, however, Philip's hospitality would pay massive dividends. But Charles VII was not done yet, and for four years after his son had made his flight into Burgundian lands, he stayed alive and kept the pressure gauge set too high. Thomas Basson, who was the Bishop of Lisieux, wrote of the French king's strategy towards Burgundy, quote, when someone wants to remove the massive bulk of an ancient tree with its huge trunk and extensive roots buried far in the earth, he starts by digging a deep trench right around it so that after bringing up some men and yoked oxen, he can drag it down with ropes when it has been entrenched round in such a way that it has very few roots still in the ground. In the same way, to bring down and humiliate the House of Burgundy, which at that time was the most flourishing and the most prosperous in France or Germany, Charles, King of France, as it were, undermined it all round, uncovering and severing its longest roots wherever he could. End quote. Charles VII's focus on Burgundian territory landed on those towns of the Somme, which Philip had acquired by mortgage from him in 1435, and on Luxembourg, which although imperial territory was exposed to French influence due to its close proximity. As you will remember, although Philip controlled Luxembourg, there were about 50 million dudes calling themselves Duke of Luxembourg. Charles VII paid one of these, the Duke of Saxony, half an agreed amount for claim of the title. So now there were 50 million and one Dukes of Luxembourg. Despite this, and also sending small contingents of troops into the territory, Charles VII was just posturing, and Philip managed to maintain his hold on power there. Philip definitely felt threatened, however, and so decided to shore up his position by making another joyous entry into Ghent in 1458. Although he had forced submission on the rebellious, he was still wary of their loyalty towards him and of the possibility of Charles VII making overtures in their direction. So he made this second joyous entry to try and safeguard against these. The French king was definitely irked that his son Louis was holed up in Brabant with Philip, which contributed to his ongoing antagonism towards Burgundy. 
Philip had given the Dauphin a residence at Genup for his time in exile, and he made the most of that time there. The King of France was getting on in age, so Louis was just waiting and wishing for his death so he could begin his own reign. Like literally, he had astrologers predicting for him the date and time of his father's impending death. Genup was a great location for Louis, and his court became another centre of power in the Low Countries to which people could gravitate. Naturally, many people wanted to suck up to the person who would inevitably become one of the most powerful rulers in Europe. Louis entertained people from around Philip's domains and beyond, making sure to put the right money and words in the right pockets and ears to be able to fortify and expand his influence into the future. It's worth repeating the quote we gave in the last episode, which Charles VII reportedly said after discovering Louis had been given sanctuary by Philip. Quote, My cousin of Burgundy nourishes a fox who will eat his chickens. End quote. Despite the graciousness with which he was welcomed into the Burgundian fold, however, everything Louis did was designed to benefit only himself, which, to be fair, we could say about pretty much every political player ever. Even though Louis gave much lip service to the interests of his hosts, any promises, agreements, or platitudes would turn out to be hollow. What then of Philip's own son and heir, Charles, the Count of Charolais? As we saw in the previous episode, father and son were very different personalities and this resulted in them having their own issues, the nature of which is probably best summarized by Cat Stevens. It's always been the same, same old story. Namely, their conflict centered on the fact that Philip had come to rely on the Croy family to administer from within his inner sanctum, and Charles just could not stand the lot of them. Philip would not entertain Charles's opinion on this at all, however. It was not as bad between them as between the Dauphin and the King. It is pretty difficult to assess emotional parental baggage from six centuries distance, but it has been argued that the greatest difference between the two cases is that Charles actually felt a great love and loyalty to Philip, and was genuinely wounded by the anger and bitterness that Philip had shrouded him with in the matter of the Croix. The Dauphin Louis, on the other hand, did not have much of a personal relationship or emotional attachment with his father. As for the two sons, the Dauphin and Charles were not huge fans of one another, despite the Dauphin being Charles's daughter's godfather. I imagine it would have been pretty much like when your parents make you hang out with some other kid you don't really like. Charles would visit Louis, but it seems to have been contrived as a show of deference and respect to the position of Dauphin as opposed to the actual person who held that position. More so, an act of deference and respect to his father, whose bitterness he was trying to overcome. Once, when Charles took Louis hunting, he lost contact with him during the hunt and returned home alone, resulting in a good finger-wagging from the Duke for failing his duty. Such disappointment would have impacted Charles, who, although impulsive and quick to anger, had the strong sense of duty and honour one would expect from someone who had been made part of the most exclusive chivalric order at the tender age of 20 days old. So during the years that Philip was fawning on the exiled Louis, Charles spent his time in Le Quesnoy in Hanau with his wife and daughter, and in Holland. His feelings towards his father seemed to have ranged between contempt and concern, 
often taking policy positions that were opposed to him. Blockman's and Prevenir suggest that during this period in which he was neglected of guidance to prepare him for his future rule, he formed the habit of looking at things in a binary fashion and forsook the nuances which his father had been so apt at navigating. Charles's beef with the Croy family did not abate during his absence from the Burgundian court, but instead was carried with him into Holland, where one of their nephews, Johan de Lenoy, was the stud holder. During his time in Holland, Charles took possessions of numerous territories from him. Most important among these was Choringham, which is also the most fun one to say. Choringham. Charles's presence in Holland meant that a new top dog was in town, so local power brokers, especially Johan de Lenoy, found their influence eroded if they were not in the Count's good books. In July 1461, the French king Charles VII became bedridden due to an illness arriving from an infection on his leg, believed to have been caused by diabetes. As his son Louis, stationed in Genappe, waited eagerly, the old king still held out for his son's redemption. Louis, however, did not seek his father's forgiveness. In all policies, he took the opposite stance to the king, throwing his support behind those whom his father had positioned himself against, such as the House of York in England. There was no way that Louis was going to break down in a fit of filial forgiveness and contrition. In fact, so impatient was he for his father to die that Louis moved to Avennes, closer to Paris than Genappe, so that he could receive word of his imminent ascension to the throne in the quickest time possible. His departure was interpreted by the Burgundian chronicler Chastelaine as a slap in the face towards his Burgundian hosts and showing how little he actually cared for them despite the respect and courtesy he had been shown during his time in exile. Chastelaine described it, quote, Now the king, and he means Louis here, Now the king left the duke's territories without having taken leave nor said adieu to the countess of Charolais, although he was in her neighbourhood, and he left behind him the queen, his wife. The said queen had neither hackneys nor vehicles with which to follow her husband. Therefore, the king ordered her to borrow the hackneys of the countess and chariots too. Heartily did the countess accede to this request, in spite of the fact that the thing seemed to her rather strange that a noble king, and one who had received so much honour and service from the house of Burgundy, and had promised to recognise it when the hour came, should thus depart thence without saying a word. However, in spite of all this, the Countess would gladly have given the Queen the hackneys as a gift if they had been asked, and she sent them to her by one of her equerries, named Corneille de la Barre, together with the chariots and wagons. And thus the Queen left the country just as her husband had done, without saying a word either to the Duke or the Countess. End quote. Charles VII died on July 22, 1461, and Philip the Good, alongside a great many people, including his own son Charles, went to meet Louis in Avennes to escort him to his coronation in Reims. It's, re- it's rhymed, reams in English, rhymes, rhymes, but the French say Reims. Louis, for his part, resumed his attitude of humility and appreciation for the support he was receiving. According to Chastelaine, throughout the whole process, it was Philip who shone as the great prince. This moment has even been suggested to be the proudest in his life, 
as he sat poised to wield significant influence over the fortunes of France, much in the fashion that his grandfather, Philip the Bold, had done eight decades prior. For his part, Louis was happy to promote the image of a pauper king. Philip remained in Paris with him for six weeks after the coronation, probably waiting to be officially made the right-hand man. His fancy attire would have struck quite the difference with the new monarch, who walked around in simple clothes with a pilgrim hat on. He shunned splendor and haughtiness, often dining in taverns and halls with commoners. The 19th century French historian Ernest Levis relayed the story that when the duke and king rode into a town, people were heard to exclaim, quote, Is that the king of France? Altogether, his horse and dress are not worth 20 francs. End quote. Those things that could be said to characterize Burgundian court culture were largely absent from the court of a new, miserly French king who supped with peasants and rarely stayed in one place for long. The contemporary French poet, Marcel Dauvin, wrote of Louis XI coming to power, quote, Farewell dames, citizens, demoiselles, feasts, dances, jousts, and tournaments, farewell fair and gracious maids, mundane pleasures, joys, and games, end quote. Now that he was king, however, Louis XI's true colours would come through. He did not name anybody to the position of his main advisor and rather took advice from whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. His idea of a royal court was extremely different from his predecessors and from Philip's. Richard Vaughan even reckoned that, quote, In the long term, Louis's aim was no less than the total demolition of the Burgundian state, in the short term, his plans were the same as those of Charles VII to maintain and encourage a group of pro-French councillors at the Burgundian court, to develop an anti-Burgundian system of alliances, and above all, to regain possession of the Somme towns. End quote. Now folks, it's time for an ad break. Totstrucks! Welcome back. Philip the Good's life had certainly entered a new final phase. He was 65 years old and physically less able than ever before. Charles must have thought that if he was indeed to be his father's heir, true reconciliation had to be forthcoming soon. To Charles, however, the Croys and their allies were taking advantage of his father's weakened state, and in 1462, a rather bizarre episode exhibited either the level of threat they did pose to him, or the level of his paranoia. One of Philip's chamberlains, called Jehan Custain, was at the Brussels court in July when he was suddenly arrested on the orders of Charles and, along with a supposed accomplice, taken off to a place called Rupelmonde, about 30 kilometers north, and promptly executed. The charge was that Custain and his accomplice had attempted to poison Charles. Don't you love medieval feudal justice? Custain had secured his position in the court thanks to the Croys, and is supposed to have enjoyed a position of trust within the ranks. It is completely unknown whether he actually was trying to poison Charles, or whether Charles fabricated the accusation in order to take a jab at the Croys. It has also been pointed out that Custain may have just been the victim 
of violent politicking that somebody else entirely who held a grudge against him or had eyes on his position directed rumors in Charles's direction which would have exacerbated his pre-existing spite for all things Croy. Charles's actions in this matter were not healthy for his relationship with Philip and would have struck a fair amount of fear in the Croys. If they were manipulating the Duke against him, as he was convinced they had been, then he had just given them reason to work even harder at excluding him completely. They and their allies now knew that if and when Charles did become Duke, they would need to flee for their lives. Around the same time as this happened, Philip appointed Charles as his representative in Holland. Although on the surface this might seem like a normal move towards his eventual succession, it was more likely an attempt by Philip to get his son back to the swamplands and out of the central governing sphere, following the Custain affair. Charles, however, took the occasion whilst in Holland to have Jean de Lannoy removed as Stadthalder, replaced by one of his own men, Lodewijk van Groothuis, as well as having the Estates of Holland formally recognize him as Philip's true heir. On top of this, the Estates of Holland also let it be known that they wanted the other Burgundian lands to recognize Charles's position as heir too. Philip was none too happy about this, cutting off Charles's income, only to have the States of Holland grant him a hefty annual subsidy for a period of 10 years, negating Philip's angry parental move. So there is no doubt there was still serious conflict between father and son, but their relationship was not the only thing that had taken ill. Philip, really feeling the weight of his years, also got sick and was bedridden to the extent that even his wife Isabella of Portugal came to see him. Although the two had formed a functioning and formidable political pairing, there was not much real love lost between them. She had withdrawn from the scene following his altercation with Charles in Brussels, but now both her and Charles went to his bedside. Charles, in particular, is supposed to have been attentive, hoping to revive his father's magnanimity towards him. However, once Philip had recovered, he upset Charles all over again by still sticking with the Croys. Philip even had one of his son's favoured men in Holland, a guy called Antonis Michaels, arrested. So Charles, with the Croys once more cruelly in his crawl, crawled back to Holland to have his man released, and to petulantly think about how he would secure the rest of his inheritance. He would soon be given even more reason to worry about this. The new French king, Louis XI, had quickly gone to work on a weakened and less vigorous Philip. The argument has been made by Vaughan that Philip had a soft spot when it came to French monarchs because he saw himself as a loyal Frenchman at heart and figured that they also must see him this way. But if either of them did, this notion was superseded by his position as the most dominant political figure of his age. It turns out that Louis XI had also bought the Croix into the spheres of his own influence and wallet. In 1463, egged on by him, they convinced Philip to agree to something which it can be reasonably argued he would never have consented to in his younger days. He agreed to the return of the Somme and Peronne towns to French possession, those he had acquired via the Treaty of Arras over three decades earlier. These were strategically important defensive towns, 
that guarded the southern entrance into the Low Countries against French incursion, but which also provided great manpower for Burgundian forces such as the Picards, as well as other resources and tax wealth. The mortgaging of these towns to Philip in the Treaty of Arras had been one of its central and most sensational tenants, and they could only be redeemed for a huge amount of cash. People have argued ever since why exactly Philip actually went through with this deal. Perhaps he thought that by giving these towns back to France, he was displaying an act of good faith towards the new king which would pay off politically later. Or perhaps he was still so obsessed with the idea of a crusade that he was willing to sacrifice the towns for the French support it would engender and the fabulous resources he can now purchase with this cash injection. What is known for sure is that it was on the advice of the Croix brothers, Jehan and Anton, both of whom were actively promoting Louis XI's interests, that Philip agreed to the deal. Louis gave Philip a nominal sum and convinced him that the rest of the payment was coming. Goodbye, Somme and Peron towns. You are now French. When Charles heard about this, he was absolutely and understandably infuriated. An important part of his inheritance had been handed over to Louis XI without him having any say in the matter or getting anything of benefit. And to rub salt into the wound, the people who he was certain had tried to have him murdered just a year earlier and who he had been raging against for years had been the ones to convince Philip that this was the right move. Charles believed there was a serious possibility now that his father would either disinherit him completely or give most of his lands away to other people. He decided that he had to act quickly. So off Charles went to Lille to ask the serious question. What the actual? Our good old mate, Olivier de la Marche, the very same who had possibly once cross-dressed as a personification of the Roman Catholic Church at the Feast of the Pheasant, gets personally involved in the story once again at this point. Delamarche was still serving the Duke in these terse times when Philip was feeling his age and under the influence of the Croix, Charles was feeling left out and making moves that were arousing his father's suspicions of ill intent and Louis XI was trying to drive a wedge between them and deep into Burgundy's guts. While together at Lille, Philip and Charles received a French embassy led by the King's Chancellor. He accused Charles of having taken a French warship captive and arresting a guy called the Bastard of Ruben Prey, who Charles thought had been sent to kidnap him. Furthermore, proclaimed the ambassador, Delamarche had spread this story far and wide, disseminating lies that were doing much damage to the French king's honour. Philip de Comines, who would later be called the, quote, first truly modern writer, end quote, but who at this stage was a young ducal page just a few days into his new job working for Philip at the time, and so a witness to all of this, tells us that, quote, His Majesty, finding himself unjustly traduced, demanded of Duke Philip that Monsieur Olivier de la Marche might be sent prisoner to Paris to receive such punishment as his offence deserved, to which Duke Philip made answer that Sir Olivier de la Marche, being a native of Burgundy, and steward of his household, was upon no account subject to the crown of France. End quote. Actually, why not also let Delamarche, who wrote of it years later, tell us his version? Quote, 
The bastard was put in prison, and the Count of Charolais sent me to Hesdon, to the Duke, to inform him of the arrest and its cause. The good Duke heard my report kindly, like a wise prince. In truth, he had once suspected that the craft of the King of France lurked at the bottom of the affair. Shortly afterwards, the Duke left Hesdin and returned to his own land, which did not please the King of France, who dispatched thither a great embassy with the Count d'Eu at the head. Demands were made that I should be delivered to him to be punished as he would, because he claimed that I had been the cause of the arrest of the bastard of Ruben Prey, and also of the Duke's departure from Hesdin, without saying adieu to the King of France. But the good Duke, moderate in all his actions, replied that I was his subject and servitor, and that if the King or anyone else had a grievance against me, he would investigate it. The matter was finally smoothed over, and Louis evinced a readiness to conciliate his offended cousin. End quote. Despite Delamarche reckoning that things were smoothed over, Philip's refusal to send him off to be punished by the French king only served to feed more fuel into the general antagonism that was going around. The French embassy had further complaints too. Charles the Bold, it seems, had made an alliance with the Duke of Brittany, who at this moment was also defying Louis XI. The French king had not received the warmest welcome to his new role by many of the most powerful French lords, and now Charles was being best mates with one of them. The next day, Charles went to defend himself against the French king's complaints. Of his new buddy, he argued that it was better for the protection of the French king that his highest nobles were close with one another so as to be able to be stronger in his service. Yeah, nice one. Comines was sure that Charles was being way more amiable than he really wanted to be, and that this was solely for the benefit of showing respect to his father. Afterwards, quote, Duke Philip concluded his discourse with great modesty and wisdom, beseeching his majesty to preserve him in his favour, and that he would not easily entertain an ill opinion of him and his son, after which he called for wine and a collation, and then the ambassadors took their leave of them both. End quote. Comines continues that, As the party left the room, Charles stood a small distance from his father and grabbed the attention of the Bishop of Narbonne, who was a part of the French embassy, and the last person to leave the room. How Comines heard him, but Philip did not, is totally unclear. But apparently Charles said to the bishop, quote, My most humble respects to the king, and let him know... He has handled me very roughly by his chancellor, but before the year is at an end, his majesty may have reason to repent it. End quote. In this occurrence, Philip had diplomatically gone to bat for his son and not thrown him under the French bus or the French horse and cart. But although this might indicate a repair to the relationship between father and son, after all, Philip seems not to have rebuked him too much for the antagonism against Louis XI, Charles was still incensed about the Somme towns, and his faith in his father's rule would have taken a severe debt. He had also deliberately sent a threat in his liege lord's direction. He had reasons, therefore, to not feel so secure and to be in need of shoring up his position. There are rumours that he even asked Philip if he could assume rule in Holland. In October of 1463, a Saxon diplomat, Peter Knorr wrote, quote, 
A good friend tells me that the Lord of Charolais asked his father recently at Bruges if he might not be permitted to make do with the land of Holland instead of the annual rents his father allowed him. The Duke denied him this, and said he would remain ruler as long as he lived, and was most unwilling to share with anyone. Since then, Charolais has fled with his wife to Holland, where the towns have received him with much honour. Things reached boiling point in December 1463, when word started spreading that Philip had decided that he was finally going to go on the crusade, which he had spent almost a decade planning and talking about, and that in his absence, he was going to give control of Holland and Zeeland to, wait for it, Edward IV of England. Random. Where did that come from? And the rest of his lands to Jean de Croix. Charles could not accept this, whether it was true or not. Immediately, he went to the estates of Holland, railing against the bad advice that his father was clearly receiving from his counsellors. The instability of this political situation clearly worried the estates of Holland, who at this point decided that the clash between father and son had to be resolved immediately before it exploded in all of their faces. So they wrote to their counterparts in Flanders and Brabant, calling for a meeting between them all to figure the whole situation out. This was an extraordinary moment, as previously the estates of the Burgundian Netherlands had been called together by the Duke himself, never on their own accord. Also, whereas before they had met in order to discuss mostly financial matters, such as the introduction of the Furlander currency, here they were plunging themselves headfirst into probably the most fundamental working of the state, the question of who was to be their sovereign. When the towns of Brabant and Flanders agreed to the proposed meeting, both Charles and Philip sent out their own letters to the estates asking them to meet because, you know, if they're going to do it anyway, may as well make it look like it was actually all of your idea in the first place. There's a great letter that Philip wrote to the towns of Holland which sums up his acerbic feelings towards them at this point. Quote, We are greatly marvelling how the inhabitants of our towns of Holland dare to be so presumptuous as to assemble on their own authority and to desire our subjects to assemble, seeing that it is by no means up to them to do this in our province of Holland, nor in Flanders, nor anywhere else, but that this right belongs to us as your prince and lord and to no one else. It seems to us, moreover, that you must think us very simple or ignorant to imagine that we would leave this country without providing for its government, end quote. In other words, how dare you do what I was about to do and only I can do, says the man who had zero intention of ever doing that. So, in January and February of 1464, the Estates General of the Burgundian Netherlands were assembled and major efforts were made to reconcile father and son and to bring certainty to the future of Burgundian rule. Charles used this as an opportunity to start taking the reins of reign from Philip. The chronicler Jacques Duclerc wrote of Charles speaking before the Estates General, in which he once more outlined his suspicions of Croix activity and fully set about laying a case for their expulsion and or punishment. Before we get into this, very often in medieval writing, the Latin term item is used, which means also, or in the same manner. So, in the following quote, for the sake of not constantly repeating the word item, we will use one of the myriad ways that the English language provides 
to say the same thing. Because why not? But if you are reading along to the source material and you think we are taking liberties, we are. But we herewith cover our backsides. Charles, quote, said that after he had returned from his recent visit to the king, the Lord of Croy had told his wife, the Countess of Charolais, who was then ill, that if he hadn't been afraid of angering others, he would have taken the Count of Charolais prisoner and placed him somewhere where he could harm neither him nor anyone else. Also, he said that the Lord of Croy had claimed that no one, however notable, was comparable to him, and he cared nothing for the Count of Charolais. For he had good knights and squires who had promised and sworn to serve him till death. The Count also said that when the Lord of Croy saw him approaching, he exclaimed, Look, here comes that great devil. While he lives, we'll have no peace at court. In the same manner, he said that the Lord of Croy had claimed after he, Charles, had withdrawn to Holland that he had done this for fear of the Lord of Croy. On top of this... He said that the Lord of Croy had boasted that if it came to a showdown, he was sure of the support of Artois, and that all that country was in his pocket, continuing, What does my Lord of Charolais hope to achieve, and who does he think will help him? The Flemings and Brabanters, perhaps? He's hopeful. When it comes to the point, they'll abandon him, as they have done others. The Count continued, that he reputed the people of Flanders and Brabant his loyal friends, and that the Lord of Croy's words were wickedly spoken. Nor had he any fears or worries about the loyalty of the people of Artois, Picardy, and thereabouts. Furthermore, he said he wanted everyone to know that the Lord of Croy had sent details of his birth to the province of Warneton, so that he could cast his horoscope, which predicted the worst possible fortune and the biggest mischiefs in the world for him. In addition to all of that, the Count continued, the said Lord of Croy had sent again to the same provost to get him, by sorcery or otherwise, to arrange for the Lord of Croy to keep his father in perpetual hatred of him. End quote. It's a pretty good rant from Charles. And speaking of rants, that brings us to today's Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. The English word rant comes from the Dutch word ranten, meaning to talk nonsense, obviously. In addition to ranten, however, anyone who might have been in the Netherlands in the 1990s would know that raving is also an extremely Dutch thing to do. Ranting and raving. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Back to Charles and his long list of complaints against the Croys. Every time he had previously spoken out about the Croys, his father had shut him down. This time, however, perhaps feeling a bit over the whole thing, perhaps a bit embarrassed by his so easily having given up the Somme towns, and perhaps still thinking of his crusading prospects and how the weight of his responsibilities was denying them being realized, Philip remained relatively amicable with Charles. The estates continually took the lead, sending deputies to both parties and, amazingly in our view, persuaded father and son to reconcile their differences. Perhaps the magnanimity which Philip had often shown throughout his career, which he had invoked in forgiving and moving past revolts and actions that had been taken against him, was brought to bear by the old duke one last time by showing pragmatic forgiveness to his son. Item, and more likely, the old fellow could just not stop thinking about a crusade, 
When the estates of his provinces were next called together in March 1464, this time actually at the initiative of Philip himself, it was solely to talk about going to Crusading. After this extraordinary meeting of the estates of the Burgundian Netherlands at the beginning of 1464, the rift between Charles and Philip was over, and by June of that year, the two were back on track to keep the rule of Valois Burgundian dukes going strong into the future. Philip the Good's life and reign was coming to an end, and from this moment on, Charles would take centre stage and begin ruling in the place of his ageing and ailing father. As Charles the Bold took the reins of government, he finally got the opportunity to do what he had been angling for for years, and he expelled the Croys and the pro-French factions in the Burgundian court. Get out of here, Johan Croy. He fled to his new master, Louis XI, and France and Burgundy would find themselves once again on a violent collision course. In the next episode, we will see that while their fathers had been happy to dance around each other ominously and behind each other's backs, Charles the Bold and Louis XI were much more inclined towards open hostilities on the battlefield. The Cold War between France and Burgundy was over, and as a result, the towns of Dinant and Liège in particular are going to get very hot indeed. Before we leave, a big thanks to all those who have expressed interest in tours. We will come back with more information about this next month. Don't forget that if you're looking for a boat tour, the best boat tour, not only in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, Europe, but, yeah, the planet, check out those damn boat guys. Just write them a message and they will organize that we can give you a boat tour of Amsterdam's canals. It's not a history of the Netherlands tour, but it's still going to be awesome anyway. You might have a chance to meet one of us, you can soak up the summer sun, and you can be socially distant in an enjoyable way. And of course, it's time to thank our new favorite people, our Patreon add-ons for this week. We want to express all our gratitude and love to Jos van Omer and Omer's cheers very much, to Zoe Ziakouris, Curious George, and to everybody's favorite Fitzroy center-half back of the century, Paul Rusey Ruse. Cheers as well for all the reviews coming in. We really appreciate it. It helps us a lot. Keep them coming. And before we leave, we want to give a podcast recommendation. You might be surprised to learn that we listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of history ones. And one of our favorites is, um, yeah, we get the irony, the Australian Histories Podcast run by Jenny. She's an absolute superstar who tells it in such a clear and engaging way. So if you're looking for the history of another random country, go and check out the Australian Histories podcast. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.